Okay, so if you're listening to this, then that means I have successfully finished a new episode of this podcast. So if you had four episodes in your betting pool, I'm very sorry. I think I might have chose that too. But now we're at five, and I want to give you a little backstory on this episode. It is with my friend Blue Steel, DC. That's her Twitter handle. Her actual name is something else. She lives in DC. She or she does all kinds of stuff apparently. You'll she'll talk about it in this episode. But she used to be a DC staffer. So she really knows a lot of what she's talking about when she looks at the news. She can see kind of behind the headlines, behind the paragraphs, and know what actually is happening. So I go to her all the time for just for her opinion or to get things explained to me, or just sometimes just for jokes. She's really cool. I like her. Anyway, in this episode, just by happenstance, it wasn't really even even planned, but like a few days before we recorded it, I had sent her a interview with Charles Blow on the Freakonomics podcast in which he talks about his book, The Devil You Know, and his plan in it to grab the reins of power by strategically moving to specific places around the country. I think he identifies seven states that could be useful in this endeavor. I will include a link to the interview in the show notes. Okay, so what else do you need to know? What can I what can I tell you? What more can I tell you to set you up for this? Uh, she lives in DC. We both have kids that are around the same that are around the same age. She likes Radiohead. I don't think that comes up, but I think she that's oof. This intro is not really going anywhere. This isn't this isn't going to go in the intro Hall of Fame or anything like that. But uh, the, the conversation's really good, so I'm just going to get to that. I love the article you sent me regarding Charles Blow. I had amazingly thought about it a million times about where would I move if I could move other places. And I like that he actually did move. Like he's he was a New Yorker and now he is he lives in Georgia, right? I think that's where he moved to, Georgia, yeah. Yeah, Atlanta, Georgia. But he doesn't realize the the memes about Atlanta, Georgia is sorry, we're full. African Americans tend to move around each other for safety and for ability to just kind of know we're not gonna be in some serious stuff. Atlanta is pretty full. At least it does have good job situation. The housing is cheaper than if you live up here. But congestion, traffic. We could move to North Carolina. What we need is a bunch of people to move to North Carolina. But do we know if we're going to get those great amount of money if we go there? We're not going to. We'll get a cheaper cost of living, but we're going to get even lower ability to be employable. I mean, it's a it's a lot of things that you have to really worry about when you're. When you look like me, when I talk about that to people and I say, yeah, I wish we can turn more red states blue. And I, and especially with this conversation about the filibuster in the background, I'm talking about you. (laughs) I'm hoping you, Dennis, wants to move to a blue state because it's safer for you to move there. You think I should move to a red state is what you're saying? You should be, no, I'm sorry. You should move to Red yeah, State. Yeah, I, and, and I was thinking the same thing because I could go there and I could be a advocate. Driving force. Right, with a vote there. But the problem is how do you get 
a bunch of white people to do something in somebody else's best interest. Well, right now it's in your best interest because the cost in those states, like North Carolina and some parts of Texas and maybe some parts of South Carolina are better than if you try to do the New York, California, D.C. thing. You can't do the Idaho thing where the salaries are still down here at the bottom, but the cost of real estate, people, a bunch of people moved from California to Idaho for the thought of cheaper real estate, ran the real estate up, but the salaries are still low. So if any, if remote, remote work stops, everybody's screwed because you can't get the work in Idaho that would pay for those housing. That is almost just a small discount from living in like DC or California. You have a couple of good states, North Carolina being them, um, Georgia being the other one, where you still have good employment and the housing costs are still low. But where in Georgia, where in North Carolina, you kind of need people to kind of spread out, else you're going to have a situation where you have one blue dot that's just outvoting the red dots and you can't get anything yeah. else in it. So you get, you get the senators, but you don't get the House. You don't get the house and you don't get the internal government controls. That's what Georgia has. It has Atlanta in the middle, basically starting to outvote the rest of the state. But then look at the response the rest of the state did. They restricted the ability for people to vote because they don't have other concentration of population that is liberal voting in their best interest. They're like, oh, we're going to we're going to teach them. The state house came together like Voltron and deprived people of their votes that are in concentrated places. I would love, I, I, I love America. It's a beautiful country. I like the diversity of topography. I don't like feeling that I'm concentrated or trapped in one little small area. But I remember reading Kurt Vonnegut and wanting to, to do the Route 66 and then remembering, oh, I'm Black. I can't necessarily feel as comfortable driving from right. one part of the country to another. I'm kind of just getting soaking in all of the different diversity and culture and people that someone else that doesn't look like me can do. My wife is Colombian and she sounds very Colombian. She looks white. She's a white Latina. Yeah. So just to see her, she looks like a, like a white woman. But as soon as she opens her mouth, she sounds Colombian. And right after Trump was elected, we drove down to see my family in New Jersey. And we had to go through some like real like rural areas of Pennsylvania to get there. And she was like, it was right after the election. We didn't know what, everybody didn't know what was going on. Like, are we, are we going to go full fascist or what? So I can totally get, and she's, like I said, she's a white Latina. Yeah. If you're black, you can't. Yeah, you wear you wear it on the outside. Yeah. I, and I wonder about that too. Like my husband has an interesting story of when he was in Honduras for the first time uh, there for two years in Peace Corps. And I can only really imagine. And when you're not like to empathize with your wife, when you're not like when when people are still in a what are you kind of phase, it could actually even be a little bit more nerve wracking because they're getting to, ready to be full racist and they're like not sure if you are one of them. And then they can bring you into that racist space and then turn on you in the middle uh, of it. Is your husband light-skinned? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if you saw the full of him when he... For a bit. I did, not enough to really get a full... Yeah. He's, uh, um, he, I would like to say, he's like he looks like... If you're end of the summer, you think he's just a tanned 
right now he's in the worst of it. He hasn't been out the house. He just looks like he has an old tan if you don't really notice him very closely. I think it took, I think he was at work somewhere. He just started his job and he was there for two days and somebody just came up and it's like they had hired somebody to ask him. He's like, um, what are you? <laughs> what are you? <laughs> like it had been bothering the woman for like his, the first two days of him working there. Um, yeah, you know, I it's one of those things where like I can see why that would be uncomfortable. I would not, I would not go and do that. But I would also be very curious. I'd be like, if I see somebody, I really want to. I want to know all their their background. I want to know all their 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 history. Yeah, you you. I think he's got to be comfortable with what his look and his sisters and brothers look are because they they range the scale. Um, uh, these Southern Virginian. I was doing his ancestry. They have a bunch of people who passed and just went into different parts of society, and then he has relatives who can totally not be perceived as black and he has others that in his immediate family that are obviously more obvious and then there's him and his 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 few sisters and brothers and you don't know who they are but but you have to figure out how to get you and other people that look like you to move to states charles bro wanted us as african americans to move to the great south and maybe it's possible in georgia maybe it's possible in north carolina but I fantasize about starting off on 270 electoral votes and never having to worry about that ever again. You know, we probably say this is safe states and this is non-safe states. If we knew we are automatically the party that can win each presidency right away, we don't have to necessarily worry about the filibuster and we can get things done. So how do you get your friends to move to, let's say, South Carolina? Well, I have friends who have moved to, to North Carolina, and I would move to North Carolina if the situation was right. I, I really like North Carolina. I like North Carolina, too. Um, Durham is really where um, a lot of jobs are. It's a technology corridor. I agree with what Charles Blow is saying, but it's easier said than done. I remember uh, West Virginia, Shenandoah, beautiful state, gorgeous houses. You can buy a huge, probably four-bedroom, three-bath for $300,000 an hour or two hours on the Metro Rail in D.C. And I remember thinking to myself, this is a gorgeous place, but I would never live there. Right. But here's the thing, though, about about uh, Charles Blow's uh, interview. It does not rely. And you're right. People like me should be doing more to get us up to 270. But the cool thing about Charles Blow's idea was that it doesn't rely on people like me. It is something that is completely within the black community's ability to do themselves. And I don't mean that as like, you guys go do it. I mean, like that, I thought that was like a cool way of thinking about how you can take over from the inside. I liked that he phrased it from that point. And he looked at the historical context of the push and pull, what he said. He looked at the historical context of the push and pull from the last time we made this big exodus to the north, mm-hmm. right? And we did it all together. We kind of all together rushed in. And I remember two weeks ago when on Twitter when everybody was cursing Joe Manchin to high hell, I said, unless you have 270,000 of your closest friends or 280,000 of your closest friends willing to move to Shenandoah, you leave Joe Manchin alone because that's as close as we're ever going to get into West Virginia. But... As I said, and, and then and then I 
change the other point. Shenandoah is 90 miles on the metro train, not Amtrak, Union Station, right to Union Station up the street. It is a great commute. I know people who do it all the time. I will implore you to do it. But I remember when I was campaigning for a good friend of mine who is a state senator in West Virginia, and we were all campaigning, and I was one of two only African-American women who was with him that day. And I was kind of nervous, but he assured me everything is fine. I went door to door. I got these weird looks, but I did my job canvassing. And then at the end of the night, we went to this really cool bar to hang out. And I remember coming in, and it was me and this beautiful girl, Tiffany. We were two African-American women. And you can hear the record scratch as we, we had a record scratch moment as we walked in the door and it was fine. And we're eating and it's like, you can see the stairs staring at us. And then all of a sudden I'm at the end and all I do is I, I feel like the touch on my hair and I turn around and the guy like goes away really quickly. And it's like, it's the most cartoonish look. I was like, uh, can I help you? And he's like, nothing, nothing. And I was like, this is just bizarre. Oh my God! It's do you, it's, it's that people don't know how to how to re, they don't know how to respond. There's different levels of racism, and one of the levels of racism is just not being comfortable around black people. Not or treating you as if you're the same level of human as they are. And it was really bizarre. They wasn't hateful, but it was very cartoonish interaction that we had. And it's really hard, especially when you have small kids. And this is a cute Archie Bunker episode is to be the first advocate to move into that neighborhood you don't want to be the first if you and a couple of people are moving in at the same time or you're all we all decide to move to shenandoah maybe it's a blog maybe i'll say yeah it's the next big thing it's only a 90 minute commute in the morning and you get to read all your books and then you show up and you're at work and then you have an easy commute back and the school system is beautiful and you love your house watch we'll all be in there together We'll all show up in the African-American community and we'll go, we'll bring that number higher. But to do it by ourselves, we don't fly without a net. We need to figure out, we need to feel like there's a system in place of support. We don't want to Megan, we don't want to Megan Markle this situation. We don't want to just feel like the harsh key lights on us. We want to be able to say, hey, who's in here to support us when we're feeling this harshness? Do we have a level of comfort? Uh, I was um, just in a minute, I had like a background and I was trying to figure out how do I feel moving to a neighborhood and then having my kids, my kid not feel comfortable. It's one thing for me, but how do you feel if your kid isn't comfortable? Right. How do you husband is having a tough time at work and you don't want to do that because it's I, the advocacy that it would be so helpful for the Democratic Party to have us in more places, I'm not built for. You know who does do it, though? And I see their numbers all over the map, and you see that, them, uh, that community making a complete difference in places like Ohio when the African-American numbers are going down, but their numbers are going up. Asian-Americans. Oh, really? Asian-Americans are actually um, increasing in places uh, like Ohio and Michigan, where you see African American numbers going down, Blow says if you know if we had enough of African Americans in 
the South, we would need the numbers in the Midwest. Well, Asian Americans are increasing in the Midwest. Uh, Latinos are increasing in different places. If we, as minorities, had a good representation in the Democratic Party, we don't necessarily need to, to have it on just one minority group. Now, Asian Americans are a little bit harder to predict of where they're really going to be because they can vote for Republicans in one election cycle and then turn around and vote for a Democrat in another. And they don't seem to, I hate to say they, because they're not necessarily a monolith, but we don't, we don't have a lot of polling on their community. We do know that it seems to be a response to fear that they have come to the Democratic Party, even though they're a little more conservative. But God bless them for being in places where no other minority group feels comfortable being. But look at what is happening with that group in this country. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get much more real than what just happened last week. No, it doesn't. And it becomes more of a pushback. I don't know. I didn't live through 1960s racism. I feel like just dropping myself in and expecting to be welcomed. It's almost like signing up to live through 1960s racism. I am a little chicken living right here in Washington, known as the Chocolate City, which is a lot less chocolate than it used to be, but it's sweetly Chocolate City because of the power, the Black dynamics that it has here. And you couldn't get such a sweeter deal if for living in a very, very uncomfortably racist place like the United States. DC has always had a Black power structure, always had a Black man. I remember the first time I came down here and I would see my the people who grew up here, like honking at the police and telling them to get out of the way. And me growing up in New York, I'm like, you could do that with the police. Wow. <laughs> so I don't know what it's like. And I, I don't think people could personally ask to do that. I think Charles will found a place that he could do it in Atlanta, but Atlanta is full. So what is the other strategies that we have to get us to 270? But I like the strategy of getting the Democrats to almost like a permanent 270. Well, what about uh, DC statehood? Do you think that that has any real chance? Do you want them to kill me? If I answer how I really uh, feel. Do I, no, I don't know. What, do you want? I would love DC statehood. You don't I, think it's going to happen? Do I think it has an amazing chance? I think it's through, through the front door. I think Republicans are going to have a serious pushback if we try. I would love to be pleasantly surprised, I'm going to say that. I would love to be pleasantly surprised. Like I said, that's basically giving us not just a 270, but an out on the filibuster. It's giving us a really comfortable margins, and I don't think the Republicans want to play it like that. The thing is, though, but it can't. Right now, we, we exist in a world where everything is like right, razor thin, and it has to go. Why is it like that? Is it because it balances itself out so that there's this many people on this side, this many people on this side, and the politicians change their policies to make it stay even? You know, I would have thought that, and I, I can't say I feel comfortable with what we're making even. I think D.C. and what we're talking about, even from the, let's see, I got to Washington, D.C. in 1999, and I just graduated undergrad, so I'm going to basically out on what age I am. And I remember who I used to talk to. I used to meet with my counterparts at the Young Republicans. I used to talk to, we used to meet once a month for brunch or, and just kind of go over things. So, so you and 
the young Republicans would meet for brunch. Yep, every month, once a month. That does not sound like anything that would happen nowadays. It would never happen now. And it could not even happen now. I don't even think the young Republicans could even meet with themselves at this point. Since the Rand Paul era of it and a lot of the insurgent level of, of politics, we're barely held together within our own parties, much less across parties. The ability to meet in the middle and to compromise and to come to consensus is not existing. Each party has a sector of it pulling it almost asunder. I think what we need to do, I think we just need to make as many changes as we can for the better. And hopefully the American people who are really the true arbiters of what stays and goes in this country likes it so much they can't send it away. So as a, and I've weighed this a lot of back and forth, but I think we should just ignore the filibuster because there's nothing in the, the rules saying that any party has to adhere to it. But what if the Republicans come in and they're the ones who ignore the filibuster for the first time? It's, it's totally out there now. The horse is out of the stable. If the Republicans take back the Senate in two years, they're going to do the same thing. Yeah, they're just going to say, oh, yeah, you were thinking about it. So we're going to be the ones to do it first. And they're, they're going to put their policies in place and it's going to be harder to counteract their policy. So I think we should just go with what we're going to do. Just get it in there, get it to be popular, get it to be popular with the American people and be comfortable but i would love to be in a position i I fantasize about this 270 situation all the time the way for us to do it that would be safest would be enough people blue state folks to live in texas because texas is the number one republican state california is the number one democrat state if we took texas off the board permanently they would be crying forever it would change the calculation of their politics they would have to get everything done through Senate and House, understanding they will never be a presidential party. Or they would be forced to change their policy. <laughs> no. It has to happen one day. I mean, the Republican Party can't just keep on getting more and more extreme. It has to out-extreme itself at one point. I think there's a such an ingrained appeal to people who want that kind of politics to exist. And that is who they are. And they have found a way to exist from the minority and they exist hardcore from the minority, which beats our numbers. But I don't think they're ever going to change that policy because fundamentally it's based on a sense that I am working for me and I want to keep this country a place where I recognize and it is for me. Now, I'm staying away from calling it outright supremacy. That's nice of you. (laughs) Not necessarily nice, because I don't think people necessarily recognize themselves in that way. But it's definitely me-centric. It doesn't even make any sense for the long term. It doesn't make any sense for for any benefit for the country. But it's all based on, you know what? I want to feel this way at this time. Individualism. American is America is founded on a toxic form of individualism. Exactly. Uh, especially where we come from on Twitter. If people really went for the capitalistic ideas, equity would exist a little more because I think it was something, there was a study that said we lose something like two to three trillion dollars just in the U.S. alone on racism. We put aside the ability to make money for the ability of expression of our own supremacy. 
we will be like, nope, I want to feel like I am on the top of the food chain over me being able to capitalize on this financially. I think as a lot of people, if you gave them the option, like, we'll give you a million dollars, but we're also going to give all those people a million dollars. They'd be like, nah, don't want it. Yes, exactly. Someone said it best. They would burn their own house down just so you can choke on the smoke. And unfortunately, I've found that to be the case for a lot of people in this country. It's a driving sense. That's why when Bernie was talking about everything is economically based in their personal space, I was like, have you really traveled this country? Have you really met Americans? The what I want people to do is be realistic about who their neighbor really is. And your neighbor doesn't always have an economic interest that is similar to your own. In many ways, your neighbor doesn't care about the economic interest. They're doing fine-ish. Their kids are doing fine-ish. And they want a way of life that they recognize. And I find the way of life that I recognize is more of a... What's up, Fuzzy Boo? Hold on. Hey. Then let's open another chunk. Trago. Lagua, Lagua. Just leave it to the side. Hey, if you guys ever, if you ever ever meet my wife, she can't do any of that Spanish speaking because she'll get mad. She'll get mad at me because I'm supposed to be doing that too. So you speak Spanish. I speak uh, poquito. Muy poquito. Everyone, everyone says poquito until you're you're your fifth hour into a fight. <laughs> no. no, but I go to I go to Colombia all the time. And I still don't speak Spanish. So, like, I, I have no excuse. Do you not speak Spanish because you worry about your accent? Oh, or my you God, not... no. I, have, I will happily speak the most dumb gibberish Spanish if I can get it out. So I'll just say, go up to somebody and I'll say stuff like, me soup. One, you soup one? <laughs> but, I mean, in Spanish. And like, like I, don't, I won't even try to get the tenses correct. If I can express an idea and you know what I'm saying... I'm happy. That's, that's communication. You can express an idea and someone knows what you're saying. I always joke about how when I'm here in the United States, I can have very nuanced conversations with people about, you know, about racism, about what we should be doing exactly to bring economic equity. And then when I go to Colombia, I'm like, cerveza is good. Beer is good. Thank you. <laughs> like I, I turn into this like Neanderthal. And the recall, if I'm writing something in Spanish, it, obviously, you can see the words and you have time to really think about it. Sometimes they're recalled. Spanish and French. I like. Uh, speak French too? Um, I think French is back there. My grandmother is from the Caribbean, uh, from US Virgin Islands. Her family is from Haiti. Oh. Okay. And I always had like a little bit of French, like I would speak, and I didn't know where it was from. And I just that wondered if it's a nature versus nurture thing. But I find different communities. When I went to Paris for the first time, or Montreal, I was able to kind of walk around and communicate fine. And I'm still on the, the fence about nature versus nurture because I should not be able to speak a thing, and I can. Mm, I think you. I have a feeling that you're being under. Uh, you're underrepresenting your yourself. <laughs> you're gonna now start to speak. Spanish every time we see at least one sentence. That's gonna be that's gonna be our running gap thing. I'm gonna speak Spanish to you. At least one sentence. One sentence because that should be the thing. Okay. Uh, no, no, it doesn't even have to be now. Does it have to be in context with our conversation, or do I? That's that's gonna be our, our running goal okay. to kind of just always right. speak a little bit. Oh, so by the way, I asked you a question a long time ago. I think like way back in November. 
because we were having some kind of a conversation. And I have it. I just found it on Twitter. Your response was, "Well, I'll tell you when you start your podcast." So I was like, "Well, I got to start the podcast now." So that's one of the reasons why the podcast exists now. Because oh, that's good. That's good. I'm glad I'm so helpful. <laughs> I wanted the answer to that this question. So let me let me find it real quick. Uh, this was on November sixth, so we were coming right off of a, some victories. This is you talking now. You had progressive Twitter trying to reason their way around what has been a basic fact for decades that you cannot win the nomination without going through the black community. They've tried every pretzel bit of logic to ignore that fact. Progressive don't live everywhere, and the vote in Brooklyn and St. Paul isn't going to stand up in the Sun Belt, Southwest, and other parts of the Midwest. In other places, you have other types of vote. Other parts of coalition recognize that. I'm going to end on this. This is you finishing your, your thread. I can be here all day, but black people again save the Democratic Party, and I agree with you on that, with wing lifts from other groups in the Southwest and Midwest. In political operations, we still don't see them. We still have problems being hired in these staff offices. So then I responded, what do we do? Is there any kind of inclusivity contract that, that we can use with politicians? And then you said, start a podcast. So I did. Oh, great. Oh, my God. Thank you, man. Wow, you, you synopsized exactly what I'm feeling right now by, by hearkening back to what I felt that day. I was salty, salty as the deadly about how we screwed up Florida. And we screwed up Florida really, really bad. And I, I have friends on the ground in Florida who talked about how... People dumped people from the Midwest into Florida, which is not totally bad because I've worked in other states that I've never really lived in. And then they they didn't hire local people. They didn't hire local Floridians who spoke Spanish. They didn't hire folks who understood the Latino community. They didn't hire people who understood the Caribbean community, which at some estimates may even outnumber especially the Haitian community and other folks may outnumber some of the Latino communities in certain spots that we need. No hiring was done of those communities. No a Puerto Rican activists who had worked on Clinton, had worked on Bernie, they couldn't get jobs. They were being directed to locations that were 100% white. And then the volunteers who'd walk into the office were being sent to places that were um, heavily Spanish speaking, but they didn't speak Spanish. So this was complete mismanagement. Was this a state Democrat thing or was this? No, this was, this was uh, I hate to say this, but this was Biden's operation in Florida. And what? How? Florida, Florida operation. We haven't had a good Florida operations in a long time and I don't understand why. And I've almost come to almost write off Florida and it shouldn't even be written, written off because Florida gets more and more diverse, and it feels like it gets more and more further away from us. Yeah, I don't, I don't get. It. I mean, I, I understand that Cuban Americans, they're, they're a little bit more likely to be conservative than uh, New Yorkers, but I don't know, man. It seems like we should have Florida. We should have it. Puerto Ricans tend to be a two to one, like one third of. Puerto Ricans, I've noticed, tend to be more on conservative side Republicans, and then two thirds tend to be with Democrats. I hate to do, be so calculating and cold because the data scientist in me kind of takes over. Are you a data? Are you a data scientist? Are you a data scientist? You remember we talked about our that certification? I'm for data science. Oh, okay. That's what my wife does. Oh, really? 
Yeah, she talked to her one day. She does. Uh, <laughs> yeah. She does amazing stuff with this uh, group, this company. I never. I never know what to call it. An organization called Measures for Justice. It's a different. It's like it's. You know what? I'm not going to botch it on this podcast mm-hmm. because she'll listen to it. Uh, but it's a smart. It's, I mean, it's a really cool thing that she's doing, and and I just. I'm going to have her as a guest on it at some point. What she's doing is cool, and she's super cool. And uh, That is awesome. I, 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 I told somebody just recently, if I had two careers that I can go into and I had to go back over, I would either go into data science fully, like the full PhD, or I'd be an ethicist. But it was really frustrating to be in 2021 where – you have analytics that is you buy three different things in a store and it can tell you if you're an expectant mother or you're going to buy a house, but we're still doing a lot of things the old fashioned way for old fashioned reasons. And it drives me crazy. The one of the ways that I have disagreed with some of my, my other colleagues on Twitter and, and the ones who know me in person is that I don't hold any sacred cows. I didn't think we need to still be in New Hampshire. I don't think we still need to be in Iowa. I want to win elections. So I don't feel a need to double down long spaces of money and time in a state that we're not really ultimately going to win or we are not going to get a net benefit for. So for us to still be knowing that we need Asian Americans to win in some states and still not having good polling on the Asian American community, for us not to have good polling on the Latino community, this lady said it to me with a straight face and I nearly got really pissed off. She was saying, yeah, um, Biden's turning it around in Florida that she pulled Bernie's team from Nevada. I was like, what does Nevada have to do with Florida? That's not even the same set of Latinos. It's not the same set of community. Um, the way they speak Spanish is different. How are they cutting? Different, how are they different cut um, Completely different communities. They didn't see it like that. And they said it with a straight face. And I was so frustrated. And I, I was ready to pull my freaking hair out. And it got me so upset that we were still still running some of these antiquated plays in 2021. And I didn't want to trash the party because on Twitter, no one is going to take it in the context that I'm saying it. They're going to yeah. use it for their own. You, you got to be very careful with the, the things you say and the way you say them. And because you never know, especially in political tw- Twitter, they'll find a tweet that you wrote 10 years ago. And then, and yeah, exactly. But I definitely do need my party Actually, I don't even mind if the other party does the smart thing and changes too, but I definitely need my party to be a little smarter. Aren't they already? Isn't that with the whole data analytics? Or what was it called? Uh, we had four different, and it's not, and people thought it was me being anti-Bernie, but it wasn't even me being anti-Bernie at the same the time. We had February of 2020, four articles, Washington Post, AP, saying, Oh, these people are winning with, uh, and I won't say his name, he's winning with the minority community. I was like, okay, how do we know? Oh, people of color. I was like, what people of color? Who people of color? Please break it down to me. No, it's just this 200 respondents out of a thousand person poll. It would just label people of color. And I was like, you really accepting this? People of color is not a demographic. It does is uh, not as a whole. It doesn't tell you if he's going to win Nevada. It doesn't tell you if he's going to win Florida. 
the a Latino poll of this set of people in Nevada is going to tell you who's going to win Nevada that matches that. A Cubans, Puerto Ricans, Dominicans poll polling would tell me if he's going to win Florida. Do not give me a people of color. And nobody understood why I was upset with it. And I, that really upset me and pissed me off. And the same thing, we don't have as much hiring of our staff. The one reason that a certain politician was rejected is you can't show up in 2015, 2016 and say, oh, Black community, Latino community, I'm here for you now, when who is on your staff? What have you done? What who bills have you co-sponsored with different people? This is to me very simple and basic level stuff, and you haven't done it until you decided to run. No, he didn't do it even after he decided to run. That is true, but he did show a little bit of it, but in a very very superficial way. And that's what people keep trying to think they're going to do. They're going to just slap a few stickers on something and say, "Hey, I'm here for you now." And a community that has a long-term relationship with government is going to really know who's been there and who's not been there. And so you're not going to say, oh, well, look at all the things he's saying that he's planning on providing. No, you have to have been in the trenches. We have to see you at the community churches. We have to have seen you at the, um, the events. You don't have to tell Bill Clinton what the hymn or the song was. He's been in enough black churches. He could sing it with you. And you know the politicians who have not done their due diligence. I will give it to Mayor Pete. And I know a lot of people tend to hate on him for this. When he realized he was not going to get the African-American vote this time around, he made a plan to put the work in for the next time go around. Is it sincere? I don't know. Yeah, there's, there's some very cynical part of me that doesn't care whether it's sincere or not. Actually, me too. <laughs> I just, I, I, I want to see the people do the work. I want to know that they're going to go in to a job with these people's eyes on their shoulder. They're part of that person's interior audience. Exactly. Understand that you cannot get around us and stop trying to keep, keep doing that. I think one of the things that bu bugs me about some of the, the discourse is that it disregards a community if they can't win it. And that's not how it's going to play. And it's going to be a hostile act to keep trying to disregard this community without trying to win it. At least flirt with me, come, give me some of your best lines, but to can say, hey, you're not listening to me. I wasn't here last year. I'm not even gonna try to win you and then go around, well, that's how come you end up with 26% of the primary vote. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, we've gone through, we've gone over this 100,000 times. Yeah, we have. It, it seems, it keeps re-emerging, um, re-emerging, re-emerging. Well, here's, here's, here's what I want to know. Do you think that a lot of the problems that were happening in, with, in Florida with, you know, like the antiquated machine that they had running down there, was that because of Biden? Do you think a younger candidate would have brought in a younger vision for outreach? I will say two things about the whole Biden situation. I honestly do not believe anybody could have won 2020 except Biden. In retrospect, I agree with you. At the time, I was like, no, 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 that's a terrible idea. And then after all the numbers came in, I was like, oh, my God, thank God we had Biden. The second part to that is that we didn't really have a cohesive party. 
I don't think, think people understand what a party is. A party is basically 50 people in a room deciding to try to go in the same direction. And that's basically the bare minimum definition of what a party is, but the, to be honest, the maximum of it. People keep saying that the establishment was really for Biden. Ooh. Somebody I talked to very who I'm very close with, and she was a DNC member for a very long time, said Biden had no one person who was on the, the major committees. He didn't have any uh, quote-unquote establishment support. They did not. They were a good number of them were with Bernie, a good number of them were with other folks, and maybe 70% of them were with a lot of other people trying to, to make moves. Biden had what they actually wanted. They, they saw something familiar and something recognizable in a brand that they thought could be Trump. He did not have any level of organization whatsoever. And I remember, I don't know if it was visible in my Twitter account, but I was panicking about the lack of organization. No, it was not. It was, it was not. I can tell you right now that it was not visible because I always go to you to be reassured. And I wasn't cutting my wrists when I was going to your page. Well, he, I could see the level of support he had on the ground when I would run across people, but he had no, none, and I mean none, no organization whatsoever. In retrospect, looking back on it, it is surprising how people just decided to do what what happened. Biden had one, and I, I'm not even exaggerating, he had one campaign office in the whole entire state of Virginia. And he lost but one county. He won all but one county. Why? Why? Because people weren't... I don't think people buy as much as people think they do. I think people... We get into this push and pull about what's on social media and what's being said. But the average American have reality in their life. I, uh, I have employees. I have employers. I know what the bottom line for things are. So you telling me something as an explanation doesn't mean I actually buy these explanations. And I don't think as many people bought into Bernie. And I definitely don't think, and I like Bloomberg, by the way, I very much like Bloomberg, but I don't think a lot of people bought into Bloomberg either. I like Bloomberg, but I recognize that stop and frisk was going to be a very big problem for him. And if you can't win African-American vote, you are going to be basically like a grenade going into the general election. So people looked around and said, everybody else is too left or too something else, and Biden is steady. And I didn't realize how many people had internally made the same argument in their head. Because I was surprised. I looked in on those Super Tuesday numbers, and I was just floored by how well he did. I went to different locations, and I was driving around and, and checking in the offices for different entities. And I knew he had lots of support. But I was really, really surprised how, with no operation, I mean, like, none. he won a lot of places. He spent not a dime nor a day in, and he, he just got it done. And once he won Super Tuesday, I, I knew the rest of the dominoes were just easy. Oh, yeah, that was it. That was the end. But then the money would be flowing in, and then, and then pe people would be okay, real, gearing okay. up to help. Him. I want to stop for, for a quick second and make a little parenthetical. 
I know why I should give a shit about your opinion about this stuff. Remind me, for, for the sake of anyone listening, what your background is. My background, and I will start from the most humblest. I started at 16 working on organizations like Nightbird and Common Cause and Rainforest Alliance. And I've been organizing since then. I've professionally organized for the party, winning positions like Democratic Chair and actually holding executive director's positions and working directly on payroll for the Democratic Party, for luminaries that you will recognize on the Sunday talk shows. I won't mention their names here. And I've been a professional organizer for a long time. Okay. You're, you're, so you have inside understanding of the way that the cogs are turning. Yes. So I don't tend to buy the BS. And I, I sometimes I, I look on the and the MSNBCs and the CNNs, and I'm going to one of these days have a chat with my friends who go on those shows and find out why do they not look like when we talk to each other? When you we, you mean uh, like staffers. We are 180 degrees different from what they're saying. We know defund the police didn't work. We know that it did not only didn't work on the top levels, 18 to 20, 18 to 29 year olds hated it. Women hated it. Um, we know that these big line messages that dominate the political shows for six to eight weeks hit like a lead balloon when they went out in different places. So it's hard for me to, to understand what's happening on TV and then for some political people to pick it up and, and run with it. When we are looking at the data, when we're in community meetings and we hear the Miss Mabels and such and such hear these ideas and they fight back hard, what's going on in our political discourse? And we don't understand. But I will say this. I think we have a good person in Jamie. I've known him forever. I think we were in CBC school together, um, Congressional Black Caucus. You know, so you know him from school? Congressional Black Caucus Leadership Institute. Okay. So you don't know him from like keggers and stuff? No, no. I don't think okay. he's a kegger type. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's successful and I'm doing a podcast. I don't know what's going to happen with with political entities because we do have to get the conversations right. I think people are confused. I sometimes lurk around to the, the other side of the room and see what they're talking about. And when things don't happen, like we can make fun of the QAnon supporters and we can make fun of the extreme left, but when things don't come out like they said they were going to come out, that's a heart that is broken. That's I'm glad that Kinan's heart is broken, but the, the left are not so far from where I am in a lot of things, and they just want really good things for most part, but the conversations have gotten perverted and distorted. And no, I think, the, I think that the difference between a person on quote-unquote the left and like you and me has nothing to do with what we want at the end of the way that we want to get there, the way that we think we can get there. I, I mean, almost everything that it's like, I wasn't offering the things that I. So where, where do we fall apart and where do we go wrong? And this is something we need to have representation of more voices going back to what we talked about, about saying it on Twitter. And I don't see a lot of people getting into the room and maybe they don't get into the room because they're, they don't want to fight with somebody in that room. 
and then maybe they don't get into the room because they're not invited. But let me say for you, for this, and if anybody listens to your podcast and they plan on running for okay, office. Okay, so don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, if they plan on running for office, look at the community that you look to represent. And do you have anybody you're really getting the information from who are, is from that room? Then if, you're, if the answer is no, you're not going to be successful. Because as much as you think you hear them, people vote for people, not who they 100% agree with, but who they think hears them. Common wisdom in the... Well, you live in this country. How, how are you going to ever find anybody who ever 100% can offer you everything you want? You kind of, especially if you're a minority, you understand that you're never going to get 100%. What did Ed Koch used to say? If you agree with me, sometimes vote for me. If you agree with me 100%, see a psychiatrist. There is nobody who's going to meet 100% of what you want. But what you can get from people is if you understand that you're listening and you care. And that's what majority of what people really want in a politician. I am listening to you. I care. Hey, Jesse, come here. Hang on one, one second. Okay. I want you to uh, meet my, my wife. This is my friend. Hi, good to see you. I've heard so much about you. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Well, she's, you probably all that stuff. No, no, no. She's uh, one of my favorite Twitter people. She's the person <laughs> a third of the time that I say, like, oh, one of my friends on Twitter said this smart thing. I'm talking about her. <laughs> cool. So then, then I have heard a lot of, about you, too. Yeah. Yeah. One yeah. Day, she's, down in DC. she's down in D.C. One, oh, day, okay. one, one day when the... Uh, when the pandemic, when yeah, the pandemic bro, yeah, I want to take any. Oh, that's nice. I can't wait. Yeah, hopefully, I'll meet you one day. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but if you invite us to Colombia, we'll go too. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish up soon and I'll, okay. I'll get started on Twitter. Okay. <laughs> don't, t- don't tell her I said this, but she's like really cool. I don't want her to get ahead of her skis or anything like that. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> no, because I, you know, I got to still live in this house. I got to keep my position as like, like it's very obvious that we're the. She is like the CEO and I'm the COO. <laughs> and I just, I got to keep that COO position. <laughs> yeah. You can't get demoted anymore. You can't go down to like just a general director right. or yeah. on the, at the front door yeah. now. I died. But I like where we are. I'm hopeful. Aren't you? Are you hopeful? hopeful? I am. I am hopeful. I am shocked that I am hopeful, but I am hopeful. I am. I mean, I've always been hopeful. I guess I, I'm shocked that I am allowing hope into my heart. Because you're, you're a professional cynic in some ways. Yes. Yeah. And the, it, to be honest, I think it's going ridiculously well. And knock on wood, even the critics in the, the as much poo as they can throw, they haven't been able to land in any any distinct way. No, you know, like on Biden? On Biden, on Kamala. We know it's coming. We know uh, it's it's only early in the four years, and she's probably going to get more of it than he will. Well, yeah, but you know what? Nothing ever hit Obama. <laughs> Knocking on wood. No, but I mean, it's done. I mean, he, he went eight years. They never got a successful scandal out of him. They never, And but it's a she's a black woman, and I think we get it a lot harder. That's she's going to get it as a woman. And then she's going to get it as a person of color. And that's, I think she has a harder tightrope to walk because of that. But there's two things that I'm a little hopeful for on her. One, because they did Hillary so, 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 so dirty. 
There's a lot of people pulling back a little bit. Yeah, they they I I really think they got her. Uh, I don't think she deserved ninety percent of what they hear. Nobody does. So it doesn't make any sense. She got it worse than Donald Trump got it. Exactly. So I think they're going to be people ready to protect Kamala because they saw what they did to Hillary, and they they're going to um, rally around her a little tighter. Is it going to be enough? I hope so. I'm a little nervous. They say you get. Um, Pollsters have noticed that you get your approval ratings. Donald Trump was in the 40-something percent. That's where he got for for the election. That's where he was his whole presidency. His whole presidency. So Kamala is somewhere between 50 to 54 percent. Hopefully she stays at that level. And maybe when she runs for office, then she'll get that level. And we'll finally have broken that last glass ceiling for women. But it's going to be a long and enduring four years. I wanted Kamala Harris as our nominee as a fuck you to everybody who gave us Donald Trump. I mean, like, it was, I wanted it to be, like, a response. Like, oh, you don't want Hillary Clinton? How about Kamala Harris? And like I was saying before, I now, in retrospect, assume she would have lost. But I'm very hopeful for the future. And I'm happy to have her there. I would like to know. And this is going to be the most like cliched question that I'm going to ask you. Like, as a black lady, what do you think of having a black lady as the vice president? Like, you're, you're not just black, but you've been in the, the party since you were 16. And now there's a black woman at the top. At the top. You don't even allow yourself to celebrate as much as you've been celebrating since even hearing her name in contention. I will say this. I donated so much money from the time I heard her name, and I donated to, to Biden as well. And I was one of those people who were early supporters of Kamala Harris, but I kind of knew what a lot of older black people knew is that we weren't, the country wasn't going to let her go too far. Mm. So I always kind of, I didn't say it on Twitter, but I always kind of knew it was going to kind of be a Biden Harris kind of thing, even a year Mm -hmm. out from even last year. Well, I remember that you were earlier, one of our first interactions on Twitter, I was like, unabashedly Kamala Harris and you were like, I'm keeping my, I'm keeping my options open right now. You know, in retrospect, I mean, not in retrospect. At the time I thought it was really smart and I was like, Oh yeah, maybe I should be less dumb. I was very happy to see you come into the Harris camp. I had ready and probably donated like so much money to our campaign by then. Um, because I kind of think I knew that this wasn't a change election. This was not one of those elections that would have swept her in. Yeah, I wanted it so bad. I wanted it so bad, though. I wanted it like to be like a like a like a knockback. Trump happened, and then we just like immediately hit it back. Yeah, I think I think I was listening to a lot of African American folks that were like, "We need to get Trump out so much. I'm not even going to risk to put her out there and have her be savage." Yeah. When I think back, that makes perfect sense. And I wasn't hearing those same voices at the same uh, capacity that you were. But I do have some, I did have some conversations with black friends. I was like, come on, Kamala Harris. And they're like, no, 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 no. Joe Biden. Are you serious? Yeah. And like they were, they were being very like uh, critical of me for being so anti-Biden. I liked everybody who had heart. So I was never been any critical because that's where your heart was. And there's nothing wrong in the heart that goes for Joe Biden. He's a really decent and loving person as you can see. But we had to get rid of 
Donald Trump with a moral authority. And we could see that the path was very, 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 very thin. Well, you saw that it was thinner than I saw. I thought we had a wide open uh, expressway. No, no, I know. I, I, yeah, I was totally that. wrong. I thought that we had it in the bag from like the midterms. No, I, um, people will lie to you about how they feel about certain things. And one thing that Donald Trump did very well is he said, I am for your place in society, no one else's. And that is a very appealing statement as we saw before. I'm going to put you first, no one else. And that is a very appealing situation for other, for very many people in this politics. A chicken, like you said, a chicken in every pot, especially if it's only in my pot. A chicken in every one of my pots. Yes, and every one of my friends' pots, but not people's who I don't know and I don't feel a, a certain community with. If you take their chicken and give it to me, that's even better. <laughs> I don't like to gloat, but I told you she's really cool. Uh, so as soon as this episode's over, you should go to Twitter, and she is at Blue Steel DC. I think that you'll you'll enjoy having her in your feed. She's it's a nice sober voice with every with a lot of people being super angry on that website. She is kind of a bomb. Anyway, so I think that is now... God, do I have any housekeeping? No, I don't have housekeeping because I'm not like a real podcast. Uh, how about... For the next episode, I'm going to have... I'm going to have my friend Vandy Beth Glenn on. Uh, she is a writer and an activist and uh, also a really cool person. So come back for that. I will try to edit that episode faster than I did this one. And, well, so long for right now. I, don't, I, gotta come up, I should come up with a goodbye catchphrase. Right now, I just have uh, turn this off and go do something useful. <laughs>